Welcome to What's Up, Wellness from the Third Floor. This podcast is provided by the Wellness and Health Action Team, also known as WET, from Portland State University's Center for Student Health and Counseling, or SHAC. We're located in the Health Promotion Suite on the third floor of the University Center building on campus. Our purpose with this podcast is to discuss a variety of health-related topics in a way that will be accessible for a non-traditional campus. My name is Bella, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. My name is Josh, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. And my name is Quinn. My pronouns are he, him, his. We're all members of the Wellness and Health Action Team, and we'll be your hosts for this podcast. Let's get into it. Warning. This episode contains discussion of food, eating habits, dieting, fat phobia, and mentions eating disorders. If any of these topics are triggering for you, please practice self-care and prioritize your well-being. Hi, Belinda. Thank you for joining us today. I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Belinda Zeidler, and I am a faculty as well as the assistant dean of undergraduate academic affairs in the OHSU PSU School of Public Health. What else can I tell you about myself? Um, Just for fun, I was an undergrad at Portland State. I was a graduate student at Portland State and I was hired right out of graduate school and I have been at Portland State as a faculty for 34 years I think and started here back in the in 19 in the late 1970s as a student so I've been around a long time Um, but I'm excited about this topic because it's this topic that actually got me back into graduate school. I have an undergraduate degree in anthropology So it was my own experiences with diet and food that brought me back to graduate school. Let's go ahead and get into the questions. Um, And I wanted to start by kind of defining the terms diet and dieting because, you know, we kind of have a cultural usage of these terms, but in terms of nutrition, what, what do those terms actually mean? Well, honestly, people throw the word diet around with this idea that it's something you go on and off of. But in reality, when we talk about our diet, we're talking about the way you choose to eat regularly, not as a way to lose weight, but and um, basically what you do daily. But like I said, often when we hear the word diet, we think, oh, deprivation, it's something I'm going to do to, to um, either reduce weight or maybe perhaps attempt to cure some disease, etc. Dieting is probably better used for weight loss, even though it still bothers me, (laughs) because really our diet is what we eat on a regular basis. But dieting tends to be uh, a reference to weight loss. And usually people are making some change in their eating habits to produce some sort of caloric deficit with the result of weight loss and or some other promise that some of the popular diets um, tend to make, which may or may not actually be true. Right. (laughs) So let's talk about what health means in this discussion as well, because it can kind of get a little misconstrued sometimes when we talk about dieting and nutrition. This is true. I mean, you know, health is a much broader and more complex word that tends to, when we talk about health, we're talking about emotional, physical, spiritual health, but also physical health, nutrition, it's, they're all combined and they create, you know, 
well-being and health for someone. And nutrition is just a piece of that. And there's no doubt that nutrition and exercise, my favorite topics, um, play a big role in the health of an individual. And they can actually, you know, healthy diet with exercise can help to reduce um, chronic disease, you know, but there are other factors involved with being healthy and that mental health piece, which many of us are having difficulties with right now because of COVID, right? Um, or spiritual health also, also play a pretty big role in what makes somebody healthy. And if we look at people who are, tend to be the oldest and healthiest in the country, it's just not just their nutrition and their fitness that makes them healthy, but it's a connection to, um, other people, it's a spiritual connection, it's an emotional connection, it's having a higher purpose. So nutrition is extremely healthy for health, there's no doubt about it, but it's one piece of many different um, dimensions. Does that answer your right. question? Right, and yeah, absolutely. And you know, when I think of those other dimensions of wellness, when those are impacted, it can also impact our ability to focus on nutrition and to take care of our physical health. So that's a really important piece of it too. So true, you're right. The minute that we feel down, I mean, we tend to be emotional eaters, right? And let's face it a lot, you know, instead of the, the freshman 15 this year, it's gonna be like the COVID 20 because, <laughs> because we're inside, we are using food for comfort. Some of us are alone. And that's really, really hard on um, our, our beings, right? So we tend to reach to food for comfort. And you're absolutely right. People who eat when they're depressed or they don't eat. So how we feel has a huge impact on the food choices that we make. Right, absolutely. And those um, kind of common things, like I, I was seeing in the spring, the COVID-19, meaning the 19 pounds that you gain, that's, yeah. that's really rooted in fat phobia and um, it's, it's really unhealthy to, to contribute to that conversation. So I think it's important to, to see that and kind of look at it with a filter, I guess, of um, what health actually means and, and having compassion around um, the things that are challenging to focus on in your health with all these contextual issues of what's going on in the world. Exactly. And, you know, really to, to practice self-compassion and self-care and, and stay away from a lot of that negative talk that comes along with making, you know, when we, when we don't exercise or don't eat healthy, how we, how, what we tell ourselves. I mean, considering what's going on in the world, it is amazing that we're all doing, I mean, I think we're all just doing the best we can. Right, exactly. And that actually reminds me of the concept of a cheat day, like um, yeah. <laughs> how negative that is, right? And how we're labeling food um, or different types of eating as really bad or really good, right? And that can really, you know, impact our, our schema of how we have our relationship with food. Oh, so true. I, I really dislike naming food good or bad. Personally, I, I, and I, you know, it's the same way I don't like it when people say, well, they're not a bad person. Well, you've said it, you've labeled it, you've, you've actually created a negative place for, you know, the person or the food. Um, I just like to think of all foods have some place in your diet. And I, I think we can make room for foods that may not be as healthy for us, but we have to make space for them because often they're linked to really important 
events in our lives, like, you know, weddings or, you know, special occasions or cultural events. And when students come up to me and say, I'm never going to eat that, or that's a bad food, I sort of cringe because I want people to figure out ways to eat food, different foods, depending on their situation, but be, to, but make healthy choices when they can, but not to punish themselves when they when they mess up. I think that that idea about um, negative self-talk, I always bring this up in my class. You know, we all are doing our best and we do try hard. And some of us, it's easier than for others. And some of us have better access to healthy food, which we can talk about. And some of us are living on a shoestring and can barely manage to afford food. You know, they're, and, it's, and it's really actually really unfortunate. But when we, we blow it because we set these extremely high standards because we are human and we are wired to be attracted to sweet foods and salty foods and fat foods. It's part of our biological heritage. And when we right. blow it and we tell ourselves we're bad, we're fat, we're stupid, it really has quite the negative um, impact for us. It's just as bad as if I were actually to say to you, oh my God, I can't believe you ate that pizza. You are the, you're, you're just such a loser. Here's, you know, why would you do something so stupid? You just, you're, you know, and think about how that would make you feel. So I try to get away from using terms like bad or to get people to, to, to be kind to themselves and figure out ways to rejoice and enjoy food and have those little treats here and there or whatever you want, you know, and build them in because that's part of living a great life, right? I mean, we love to have those things. We just have to figure out a way to balance things a little bit more. And certainly industry plays a big role in this, right? Because we are bombarded with a lot of very unhealthy food all the time. Right, I mean, it's, it's all contextual and, you know, considering the social determinants of health is always part of the conversation, so. Um, yes. yes, it's true. Yeah, so in, in kind of, trying to build that balance and in general, how do we, what does a healthy diet overall kind of look like? And what does that feel like too? Because it's, it's less, you know, you're not going to feel the, the impacts of a tiny difference in sodium in one day necessarily. Right. Um, but you know, what does that kind of feel like overall to, to have a quote unquote healthy diet? Well, for me, when I'm defining a healthy diet, when I think about when I talk to my classes, I think about a diet that does several different things. One, it, it needs to be something that an individual will eat, right? So it caters to their own individual tastes, their cultures that they come from, and their own personal dietary restrictions. So we have to look at that piece. That means there's going to be a lot of adjustment, but it also doesn't rely on supplements to provide the essential vitamins and minerals. Now there may be some, but we would like you to get your vitamins and minerals from food. So some sort of combination of, you know, of looking at the ways we like to eat, the foods we like to eat. You know, if you really don't like to eat kale just because it's the most popular food right now, don't eat kale. There are plenty of other vegetables that will provide you with adequate nutrition, vitamins and minerals. It doesn't have to be kale and it doesn't have to be something that, you know, your mother forced down your throat that you don't want. So in my world, lots of fresh food, right? Lots of unprocessed food, because we know that unprocessed food is healthier for us, but that doesn't mean it necessarily has to be plucked right off the vine. I understand that my student population here 
has a range of incomes, many of which are on a living on a budget. So, you know, uh, having frozen vegetables or fruit is fine, right? But we want food that provides essential vitamins and minerals, that's within a healthy range of calories to support health and make somebody feel good eating it, right? So that they ultimately start feeling better because they're getting the nutrition they need for improving the quality of their life and to be able to satisfy their, their um, physical needs and to help prevent and reduce disease. Does that answer that question? Yeah, completely. And I think um, our, our attitudes when we're eating something play a really big role Yes, they do. They do. They play a huge role, our attitudes, you know, and we've grown up with our attitudes, right? So how, well, however we were socialized or taught to how to approach, this is really actually really interesting because I currently have my daughter living with me and her partner and her partner grew up in a part of the country where if there's not something that walked, crawled or swam on the plate, um, it's not a meal, right? So her idea of what a healthy diet is and how she needs to construct her diet is very different than how I grew up. And so it's been really interesting and how I raise my children. So, um, but you're right. There's a lot of stuff that impacts our diet choices and what, what um, we would, what we consider healthy. But certainly we know this, that processed foods, the more processed a food, it tends to be less healthy and may lead to um, disease. You know, if I was to say that there was any one food that I would, I try to get people to steer away from, it's sugary beverages, just because we just don't need those empty calories and they're, they're, they're sort of a waste. And that extra added sugar, the refined sugar has been linked to a variety of health issues. And so usually I try to steer people away from that um, but there are cultural pieces with that. A lot of people grow up drinking things like soda and it's part of many people's cultures and it, that's going to take work. And, it, you know, and we, we, again, we need to look at how do we work with somebody to get them to shift away without making them feel bad because that's not the point. It's to help them feel good to make, about making other choices and not focus on, okay, I blew it or I had that soda. And then, you know, we also have this other issue, which I will bring up about how so many of us don't have access to healthy food. We may live in parts of the city that are food deserts. And I don't know if your listeners know what a food desert is, but that's like a, a neighborhood where there really aren't any supermarkets to shop in. So you end up having to buy fast food, which is very cheap or shop at a 7-Eleven, which virtually has no real value in there food wise. I mean, there's a few things. Um, or we might live in an area that we call a food swamp that's just full of fast food or, or a food oasis. I don't know if you've heard of that one. You probably have because you are very savvy. But um, the idea that we live in a neighborhood where there might be a grocery store like a Whole Foods, but we can't afford to shop there because it's so expensive. So we need to, we need to look at everything when we're looking at our healthy food choices. We can't just make assumptions that people have access to the foods we'd like them to eat. And we certainly cannot shame people for not being able to get to those foods because we need to make sure that we make them available to everybody. Yes, that's a, that's a great point. Um, and I, I wanna ask you about kind of some popular diets that we hear about and that we may have experience with. And 
what are what are some of the more healthy ones that you kind of recommend um, talking about, you know, the Mediterranean diet and, you know, what is veganism and, and what are some pros and cons of this and um, just breaking down some of the science a little bit. So we kind of have a better understanding of what they actually are versus what, um, you know, commonly we know them to be. Okay. Well, I, I am a major fan of the Mediterranean diet. There's a, a tremendous amount of research actually. I mean, so much of it, I, I could just spend hours citing it all for you. Um, it's, it's one of my favorites. And again, it's, um, it's a diet that has lots of whole foods in it. So whole food diets are diets that are full of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and you know minimally processed, etc. Lots of plants, lots of fruit, um, and there is a small amount of animal products in it. So for some populations, this is not attractive, but we're not talking about huge amounts. We're talking about probably less than 20% of the diet. So a little bit of dairy, some fish, etc. And most of the research, and, and by the way, um, lots of healthy fat, like olive oil, nuts, and seeds. And most of the research for people following a Mediterranean diet, we tend to see a reduction in chronic disease like diabetes, heart disease, stroke. We see less Alzheimer's in, in um, populations that eat a Mediterranean diet, less depression, and it's a great diet, but it's also an expensive diet, right? It relies on fresh whole foods. And I don't know if you've had an opportunity to shop at like the Portland farmer's market or the Beaverton farmer's market, but your money doesn't go very far there, right? I mean, it turns out that fresh fruits and vegetables and fish are extremely expensive as are nuts right now. So while I, I would love it if everyone could eat this way, it's, we need to figure out a way to make it possible for everybody to eat this way if they are people who are interested in eating some small amounts of animal products. And that is a piece that, again, not, is not attractive to everybody. But this diet is full of phytochemicals. It tends to satisfy our, all the vitamins and minerals and has this he very healthy protective fat in it. And um, so it's definitely one of my favorites. And if you were to ask me my style of eating, that is my style of eating. Uh, but you did bring up vegan diets and vegan diets are extremely popular right now. They are, we call them plant-based. They're really plant only. A, a vegan diet is a diet that is um, based only on eating things that grow, which is great. You're not even allowed to have honey. So nothing that walks, crawls, no products from anything that walks or crawls. So there's no eggs in it, etc. And um, very, very popular. And I, I think you can make a vegan diet extremely healthy, but I do wanna bring up a couple of points about it. I mean, I love any diet that relies on lots of plants. So that's, that is a pro to me right off the bat. But in order to get all of the nutrients you need from, from following a vegan diet, you really cannot be a picky eater. You can't decide that you're gonna give up grains, all right? You need to be able to eat a variety of plant foods. That means a range of fruits and vegetables, a range of grains and foods we call grains that really aren't like things like quinoa, really aren't considered a grain. Um, tubers, nuts, seeds, because we need to have the combination of those foods to get all of our essential amino acids that we need and to get all of the vitamins and minerals. And there is a big, uh, a couple of things I wanna say about it. If you're gonna be a, a practicing vegan, 
you're going to have to take a B12 supplement or consume a fortified product because you can't get at the B12 that is in plant foods. It's just not available to us, right? While mushrooms, the bacteria that live on mushrooms can make a tiny bit of it, it's just not enough for health. So a B12 deficiency well can take five to seven years. It does um, end up, you know, if you actually starved yourself and, and didn't have B12, you could end up with a type of paralysis. So, you know, not really a good side effect. Um, the other thing that I try to caution my vegan students is that when you are looking to get your minerals only from plant sources, they are very poorly absorbed. The human body needs a significant more, um, a greater amount coming from plant sources. So for example, iron is very poorly absorbed from plants. So the RDA for iron might be 18 milligrams if you're eating a mixed diet, but you're gonna to have to almost double it to get the iron that your body needs to prevent you from having anemia. So we do pay, we like to pay attention to that. I usually recommend that vegans purchase an iron skillet or pot and cook in that because the iron that leaches into their food is the same iron that your body can use. Lastly, vitamin D can be a problem, but vitamin D can be a problem for anybody who lives in the Northwest. So yes, if you eat mushrooms that have been exposed to sunlight, mushrooms can actually make vitamin D and that's terrific, but you're gonna to need to make an effort to eat them regularly and make sure they're exposed to sunlight. Even in the winter, mushrooms can make vitamin D from sunlight. Otherwise, that might be another area to supplement. So for practicing vegan, again, lots of variety, very high healthy diet. We tend to see a reduction in chronic disease as well. Full of phytochemicals, just have a few nutrients that you need to watch out for. And you can't be picky. Like I have worked with students who really, they, they eliminate all their grains because they somehow hear grains are bad for you and they're not. Whole grains are great, but you've got to be able to eat that combination of grains and nuts and legumes. You've got to eat the beans and everything so that you can get everything you need. And then let's talk about some of the other really crazy popular diets right now that, you know, every year it's something new. And this year, it is the keto diet. So the keto diet was originally developed to help reduce, reduce seizures in children who had epilepsy. So it turns out that going on a very high fat diet and a typical keto diet is about 70% fat, 20% protein and 10% carbs, forces your diet to go into ketosis, which means that you don't have adequate amount of carbohydrate to fuel your brain and your muscles so you actually start breaking down fat and in the process of breaking down fat, you don't break it down completely. Um, and so you, you form these ketones and ketones can actually be used by the body for fuel to a certain degree. It's actually a protective mechanism to get us through periods of famine, but in um, your, your brain can start using those ketones for fuel and it seems to help reduce seizures in children and even adults who have epilepsy. So that's great, I love that. Except why people decided that that would be useful for a healthy functioning adult, I have no idea. Like seriously, I don't know why people decided that eating a 70% fat diet was a good thing because I cannot think of a population with the exception of our Native, Ameri Native um, Americans or Eskimos that live you know, like up in our, the North that eat a diet like that. The rest of us don't, and nor do we have 
any examples historically of people eating that way. I'm not sure where anyone would get 70% of their diet from fat because we didn't have access to lots of fat in our diet until we were able to actually process vegetables to, to extract the oil. So with the exception of Native Americans like Inuits up in, in Alaska, who eat a lot of fatty fish and don't have, their diet is very different and they sort of evolved that way. Most of us, there's just no population that would ever have access to this 70% fat. And a diet that's 70% fat with very low carbohydrates and moderate amounts of protein probably is gonna cause problems like constipation. Um, there's, you're definitely gonna be missing some of the B vitamins. You're not gonna have a lot of fiber. And there really isn't good research to suggest that over the long haul at a diet like this is particularly healthy. Yes, you will see weight loss initially, but after a while, it's gonna slow down and people get really sick of eating this way. And one of the reasons why people lose weight on it is ultimately they reduce their calories. So these crazy diets that really eliminate a lot of food groups, typically the reason people lose weight isn't because they're magic, the magic part is they can't stand them and they drop their calories so low that they end up in a zone where we would see weight loss because there's a caloric deficit. So not a fan of the keto. And yeah, we have seen some research suggesting that we see a reduction in diabetes and heart disease and possibly cholesterol levels, but we can see this in many diets. When people achieve weight loss, we tend to see markers of that and they show up with lower cholesterol, lower risk insulin um, you know, resistance. So it doesn't really matter what the diet is, it's the weight loss that probably causes the benefits. And nobody has seen people on these keto diets long-term. Then we have the paleo diet that was really popular um, and still is. And I actually have to share a little story, two little stories about the paleo diet. So in my classes, I want to say, probably about eight or nine or 10 years ago, because I have no concept of time anymore. Um, I, I had on one nutrition class, and actually I had about a whole year of it, where I had paleo followers on one side of my classroom, and I had vegan followers that were sitting on the other side, and they would fight and yell and scream at each other. And you know, people are extremely passionate about food and their food choices and about diets and I actually got to a point where I had to, to separate them and have a big conversation about make, you know, being kind to each other and making choices and we need to respect each other's way of eating. Um, I also at that time decided that my family should try following a paleo diet and a vegan diet and we, we would discuss how we felt about being on them. So my kids came home from college and I immediately put us on a paleo diet for two weeks where after about four days, nobody in my family wanted to eat anything. I mean, we eat lots of vegetables, but we wanted nothing to do with all of that meat and chicken and fish. We just were like burned out. But we all, and we all lost weight because ultimately we all cut our calories down because we had eliminated large food groups, right? No more grains, no more snack foods, no more anything. Lots of fruits and vegetables, but definitely our calories down, were down. So after two weeks and we all lost about three to five pounds, we went on the vegan diet where we gained the three to five pounds back, by the way, because who doesn't want to eat a whole fresh loaf of bread? And my son immediately figured out how to make cookies. And it was actually, but, but we all agreed that we liked the vegan diet better because it gave us more variety, which is very interesting. Needless to say, let's talk about the, the paleo diet. Um, 
it's got this premise that we haven't evolved since hunter gatherer days, some 10,000, you know, 10,000 years ago, which is actually not true. It's not like we just stopped evolving. Um, we're continuing to evolve. We know that because we know that there are populations around the world that have an ability to digest the lactose in milk. And that probably happened in a very short period of time, just depending on um, what they were eating. And so they, they were able to continue to have those enzymes to break down lactose. Um, they also have this idea that we didn't eat any kind of grains or tubers back then, which is kind of nonsensical. We ate anything we could find and things that we shouldn't um, eat, we ate anyway. So there were precursors to grains. We've now found that grains in, in um, fossilized teeth. And so we know that they ate some kind of grain. We know that they ate a lot of tubers. Um, so we know that some of the, the, the premise about the paleo diet is actually not true. Um, there are some things about the diet I do like. It does rely on a lot of vegetables and fruits and nuts, um, and it doesn't have sugar in it. So that's great. But the idea that whole grains um, or tubers are unhealthy, there's just no good science to support that. And if you look around the world, the people who live to be the healthiest, which is key, and the oldest in the world do eat whole grains. They do eat many of the foods that the paleo followers suggest that we shouldn't eat. Um, there are some other things that drive me crazy about the paleo diet because I think there's a lot of cherry picking. Um, for example, the paleo diet allows un, um, unlimited amounts of nuts and seeds. I am unsure where anyone got those 10,000 years ago. They certainly would stumble into nuts and seeds, but Trader Joe's volume, I doubt it. Um, and honey, honey is allowed in the paleo diet, not the vegan diet, but where did they get all this honey 10,000 years ago? I have um, no idea. And where did they get vats and jars and tubs of coconut oil? Because I can tell you, unless you were living in a tropical location, that wasn't available either. So I feel like they've sort of tweaked this to sort of make it work for what they want people to eat, but no real good research to eat this way. And I need to add one other caveat or one other issue, I guess. One of the big conversations I have with my students is, you know, you obviously have to find a diet that makes you feel good and fits within your style. And there's lots of different ways of eating. But the other thing that you need to pay attention to is the impact that your diet is going to have on the planet, because we all share this planet. So is your diet environmentally sustainable? And I have to say, yes, that's true for a vegan diet. And I think you can easily make a Mediterranean diet um, sustainable. But when I see diets that, that are expensive and also rely on a lot of animal products, and mind you, I eat them, but in small amounts, I have to question whether or not that's something that this planet can, can handle. I don't, I think we can all have a little um, animal product in our diets and be careful and make wise choices. But I don't think we can all follow a paleo diet without it having a tremendous impact on the health of our planet because it costs us a huge amount to raise animals for consumption. So I, I ask people to think about this. My other real concern is let's just pretend that the paleo diet ended up being the best diet for health. And we don't have good research to show that, but let's pretend. This is a very expensive diet. Lots of fresh fruits and vegetables and they really want you to eat organic meat. I don't know who can, I can't afford it, organic meat. 
So I am unsure how the rest of the planet is going to afford organic meat. So those are some of my issues with that diet, but you, you can do some things with it. Um, I also want to talk a tiny bit about the Stanford study. Um, it was a study that wa um, was published in JAMA in 2018. They have done a lot of research looking at diets and whether or not we could predict whether or not somebody's blood type or, um, you know, actually blood work genetics, if there was a certain diet that would work best for some somebody. So this was an amazing study, by the way. Um, they were trying to figure out why some people could control their weight better on a low carb while others do better on a low fat diet. And they thought perhaps it was genetics. And so the study was looking to see if there are variations in genes that could explain the wide range of success people have. Uh, and so they actually put people on either a high quality healthy, and by healthy, I mean lots of fresh foods, minimal processed foods, either low carb diet or um, low fat diet. And then they did a lot of blood work on them. So they had genetic testing and a baseline insulin test because they were trying to determine, well, maybe there really are markers, individual markers that would help us figure out the best diet for an individual. I mean, that's like the miracle for us. And after these individuals went on this, this um, in, in the study, were on these diets for a year, um, and it was a very expensive, it cost millions and millions of dollars actually to run this study. Um, the, both groups lost an average of 12 to 13 pounds or about 6% of their body weight. And that was huge, okay? And what they found was that none of the hypothesized predisposing factors, genetic makeup or initial insulin sensitivity was related to how much weight participants gained or lost. So the bottom line was, is that they couldn't identify any one particular diet that matched a person's genetics or insulin response. What they came away with is you need to find what works best for you, what you're willing to stay on and something that's healthy. So I just wanted to share that because I think it's pretty interesting. You know, we're constantly trying to find the perfect diet. And the answer is there is no perfect diet for weight loss. I couldn't tell you one diet that's best for weight loss. I think you need to find the diet that works within your interests, your food preferences. And like I said, can provide you with vitamins and minerals and also one that you can stay on for life really. So find a way of eating that satisfies you for life and that includes foods that you love and, that, and one that can give you all the nutrients you need. Oh. Right. I think that's a great point. And it's, it's hard to, you know, sift through all of this information that we see and things that we talk about in our culture about nutrition and figure out like what real diets are and <laughs> what healthy, what a healthy diet would even be and, and how to apply that to ourselves. And so, you know, especially in talking about, um, you know, wellness information that's disguised as wellness and it's not actually real and it's often the weight loss industry. How do we pick out that pseudoscience from information that we can actually use in trying to make changes in our lives? This is a great question to which honestly, I spend a lot of time in my class now trying to get people to be wise consumers. 
because with the internet, there is so much misinformation out there and it's really, really hard to navigate. You, you really have to scroll through anything you're reading to look to see who wrote it. Was it sponsored by industry, right? What are the credentials of the individual who's written the diet that you're following? I mean, this is really, this takes a lot of work and most of us believe whatever we read, right? So we go online and whatever it is we see, we immediately believe it and we don't question. I have asked my students, you know, this idea about relying on coconut oil, why all of a sudden have people decided that coconut oil is like the best oil and healthiest oil? And I asked my classes and nobody has an answer. They read it online, some diet guru that was online wrote about it, Dr. Oz talked about it on an Oprah show. And yet, you know, we have no research to support this. Of all of the, the oils, coconut oil is the least healthy. It doesn't come packaged with any of the vitamins or um, <laughs> that we're looking for. It doesn't have essential fatty acids in it. It certainly tastes delicious, right? And even if we look at populations, you know, well, we hear, oh, well, populations that consume it, for example, they do, they fare better. Well, it's not the coconut oil necessarily that makes them fare better. It's their overall diet. So one of the best things I can suggest to you is do your homework. Look to see what the credentials of the individual um, or individuals are that have written the diet book or the blog. Just because they are a food writer or they write about diets doesn't make them an expert in the field. And somebody who has a degree in physics, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have an understanding of nutrition or how the body works. You know, there are diets um, like the eat right for your blood type. There's no good research to support any of that. It's pretty crazy, but people jump on it. You know, we are willing to try pretty much anything if it guarantees a quick weight loss. And I think that's the other thing. If it's too good to be true, it probably is something that isn't going to be effective. And if you're eliminating huge um, food groups, it's probably not gonna be that healthy either. So the best thing you can do is look for good research, look for credentials of the individual and determine whether or not whoever it is is making a profit, right? Also, is it something that you could stay on for life? Like really your diet, you need to figure that out. Is it something that you can eat for the rest of your life? It's not something you go on and off of, all right? So, and I, I mean, off the top of my, one of, one of the, I mean, I do have students look, look at websites to determine whether or not they're a .com, right? Are they selling something? Or are they an EDU, right? Are they an informational site sponsored by a research institution. I mean, these are things to look at too. It, but it is impossible. We are bombarded with all of this crazy diet information, much of which has no research behind it. Some of which is so cherry picked that even if the book you're reading has 25 pages of references in the back, honestly, a lot of times they throw references in there that have no link to the, to the hypothesis of the diet. And a good example of that is the guy that wrote Grain Brain. You know, if you actually checked his references, they don't even address his hypothesis about grains, whole grains being unhealthy and causing problems in your brain. And, but who would do that? Like, who's gonna go through that? You see those references, right? Citations, you make an assumption that this person's done their homework. But if you actually start pulling things up, you might realize that that citation 
doesn't have anything to do with the diet at all. And I think that we just trust people inherently because they publish something. But you know, any one of us could publish a diet book. I always, I like to joke with my classes, we should write one in class, you know, your hair color related to weight loss, anything we want to come up with, we could probably sell it and make millions. So I, I um, you've got to be savvy and you, you need to do your research. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I didn't even realize that about the false references. Um, yeah, that's something that can definitely fool people. And there's so many strategies that they mm -hmm. can use, you know, even just using the word, uh, you know, natural foods or, right. you know, natural flavor. Like, what does that actually mean? Right. <laughs> um, Doesn't it sound great? It sounds like it's healthy, but natural really has no definition. Right. Yeah. And they can um, put that you know, in terms of supplements, how does that fit into this conversation in terms of not being a regulated or scientifically proven? Right, efficacy. So right. supplements aren't tested for efficacy. In other words, they don't have to do what they say they're supposed to do. Now, vitamins and minerals obviously have a role in the body, right? Um, and we can test them to, to see if they dissolve, right? to make sure that the product has what it says it has in it, but we cannot tell you how your body's gonna absorb it. And we certainly know that with a lot of supplements, whether or not they're vitamins and minerals or all the other supplements out there, whether or not they will actually work as advertised. And unfortunately, that's just a loophole in the way the laws are. So we need to be very careful um, with this because supplements can get away with using language that has to do with structure and function if they start putting words like cure in there, they're, they're not allowed to do that, but they can say things like enhances prostate health or, you know, words that we would not understand that it really isn't proven to do that, right? So we have to be very careful. Many people rely heavily on fortified foods and supplements as a way to get the nutrition they need. And I can tell you from a research perspective, there is no good research that supports the use of supplements as a way to get the vitamins and minerals you need. As a matter of fact, consistently, um, at, when we look at research for like reducing disease, it has flopped. I would love to tell you that if you took vitamin E supplements or vitamin C that your chances of having um, a reduction in heart disease or cancer um, would be greater, but every single time they actually run a controlled study, right? where they give people the supplement and look to see whether or not they develop the disease or have a reduction in disease. Once we start putting people on the pills, we don't see the outcome we want. We consistently see benefits when people eat whole foods, but we don't see those benefits when people consume vitamins and minerals, unless of course they're nutrient deficient to begin with. Right now, of course, we're heavily studying vitamin D and its role in immune function. There may be some benefit to making sure you get adequate, if not a little more vitamin D in immune function. There's some good, good stuff, you know, with this, and this is tied to COVID, right? What might we do to help reduce our risk of developing or catching COVID or having a, 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 um, a worse outcome from COVID? And vitamin D may play a role, but remember, we really need much longer term studies to, to see an outcome. But you know, we are asking people right now if they're getting adequate vitamin D. If you live in the Northwest, like I said, if you're not a dairy, if you're not consuming dairy that's fortified or um, a non 
dairy alternative that's fortified, you probably want to consider a vitamin D supplement. Most of us, you can't make vitamin D when exposed to sunlight in the Northwest between November and March. So it's something to think about. Um, they're also looking at vitamin C. But again, when we're looking at the big picture in terms of supplement reducing our risk of disease, it's just not been that good. So whole foods are best. But if you know you're a college student and you're on a very limited budget and you just know it's going to be really hard for you, you know, taking a, a one a day makes you feel better. Like, and I shouldn't promote any particular vitamin supplement because you can go to Costco, get Fred Meyers or Target. It doesn't really matter. They're all pretty much the same. Um, that might not be a bad thing to do, even though I'm, like I said, I'd rather you eat whole food, but sometimes we just can't and we can't afford it. Um, so, and, and if you're eliminating entire food groups, then you might need to, to take a supplement. Like I said, a vegan really needs to watch things like B12 and iron and vitamin D. So, um, those are supplements that you might consider, but some of those, you know, like if you really play your cards right, you can get iron from food. Um, does that answer your supplement question? Yes, absolutely. And I, I actually remember taking your class and, and your thoughts on this. And that's why I, I wrote that question. Because um, I think it's an important piece of the conversation. Um, because there's so, so many things that we believe that are just common beliefs that aren't necessarily supported. Right. And again, you know, I, I am not a huge fan of supplements it, because I do believe that whole foods can get us most of what we need. But I also recognize that good chunks of this, of our population, for lots of reasons, don't have access to healthy food. And we need to figure out how to get healthy food onto their plates. I mean, and I think, and, and so while we're working on that, we need to make sure that they do get the nutrition they need. And if it means that some of the vitamins and minerals come from a supplement, initially, that might be the best thing we can do. Because we know like for children, when they are anemic, it makes it much harder for them to do well in school. It impacts their concentration. They get fidgety. They actually act like they have ADD when in, indeed it's just an iron deficiency, it's anemia. And this is a very common deficiency worldwide, but particularly in populations that don't have access to healthy foods. And the unfortunate thing about, you know, when we donate food, and this is my, my plug to you who can actually afford to donate food to food banks, is we tend to donate a lot of very starchy foods, like a lot of white rice, et cetera, when actually we need to donate things like tuna, and um, you know peanut butter and whole grains. So if you can afford to donate, think about donating, you know, kind of shy away from things like the starchy foods because they get plenty of that. Um, and see if we can't donate some of the healthier foods. But we also need to have access to, you know, to um, farmers markets that make it affordable for everyone to be able to get these foods. And that's policy change, right? And that's dealing and zoning and dealing with ways to get food into neighborhoods so that everyone, everyone deserves to have healthy food in this country. And we need to figure out ways to do that. Yeah, I think that'll be one of the, the main focuses of public health in the next, you know, few decades, because we've only seen food insecurity really grow and you know, COVID has definitely worsened that. So it's important to 
be aware of the resources we have, but also be more proactive rather than reactive with this problem. And I really try to address the root, which is often poverty and, you know, racism is a part of this conversation as well. And there's so many systems that contribute to making it harder for people to access food. Oh, absolutely. And this is our task going forward. So while I can talk about personal nutrition choices, I also recognize that uh, I need to be really careful because some of us have access to an abundance of healthy food while most of us don't. And it's not okay. We also need to be really accepting of the cultural impact of our food choices and that we can't go in and make decisions about, uh, we need to go in and respect the cultures and the food choices within those cultures. Cause you know, if you, you know, different populations in the United States um, are really tied to their to their food and their traditions and, and, you know, going in there and shaking our finger at them and saying, you know, no more X, Y, Z. And I don't want to pick on any particular culture because it, you know, we need to figure out ways to help people understand that there are ways to, to have and enjoy those foods while also working on helping making better choices that we help them get because we're not setting them up for that. Um, so that they can reduce their risk of disease. So it's a, it's a combination. Um, and it's, it's going to be work. It's going to be a lot of work. And those of us who are privileged and have access ha have to really think about how we're going to approach this because it's, it's also delicate. Food choices are really personal and we need to respect them all. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and approaching this as researchers or being in public health understanding our own biases and what we've you know come to understand about what health means and what different foods mean and all of that um an example that, that just comes to mind is msg because mm -hmm. i've i've seen kind of a resurgence in the last few years about reopening that conversation around msg and understanding the racist undertones that have been really used to demonize it in america oh um, absolutely yeah yeah and we also need to be sensitive to just because we bring people healthy food doesn't mean they're going to eat it. Right. You know, it, it's, there's, there's that cultural piece, but a lot of healthy food, fresh food requires additional amount of time cooking and preparing it. And when you're working with a family who have, when mom and dad have to work three jobs just to keep the lights on and put, keep gas in the car, I can guarantee you that bringing them food that's going to take an hour to cook versus 10 minutes is going to be a challenge. And also if we bring them food they're not used to eating, foods they've never seen before, even if we teach them how to cook it, there's an issue about whether or not they're gonna be able to continue that practice. So we need to figure out creative ways to help families that are struggling that don't have lots of time too. So you know, again, some of us are more blessed with opportunities to cook and we can have gardens, et cetera, but that is a small chunk of the population, right? So it's, you know, I, I really encourage people to, to take really small steps. You know, I mean, I, you know, we also know that when people make massive changes to, to their diet or to their lifestyle, that they're less likely to stick with it. 
and they're more likely to have negative self-talk self because they'll they'll fail. And then we have this cycle and you know, people living in poverty and are dealing with racism are already dealing with all of that, that negative, you know, feedback constantly and they don't need it from 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 me <laughs> or anybody else telling them the diet is bad on top of it. We have to figure out positive ways for change and um, and we need to teach people to take baby steps, you know, so I usually suggest, okay, pick one little thing. You're just going to have one piece of fruit a day, if you can afford it, right? Or maybe you'll give up one can of soda or whatever it is, but success breeds success. And we need to celebrate our successes too. So it's, there's so many different factors involved with helping deal with um, the, the problems facing so many of the people in this country. And it's easy, you know, again, I can, I can get on my soapbox, but I also have to remind myself to get off my soapbox and <laughs> meet people where they are and, and uh, remind myself that I am really privileged and very lucky and fortunate. And part of that is I grew up in a family that really valued healthy food. So that made it a little bit easier for me. Right. And it's like, who, who has the opportunity and the capacity to value health and nutrition and and make these things happen. And we've seen this happen too with, you know, trying to make behavior change with kids and, you know, teach them in schools about nutrition. But if they go home and their parents aren't on the same page, then, you know, that change isn't really going to happen in the family system or in the community. So oh. there's so many approaches to this and it's a really complex thing to tackle, but I think having these kinds of conversations are a good way to start. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of our students like yourself. I'm proud that, and I know that we will make headway. It's going to take time, but we will. So that, you know, I know that's, um, and it's, we're going to be creative and we'll figure out how to tackle this. And, you know, um, so I kind of feel like I went from talking about diets to talking about policy. <laughs> Maybe that's okay. Um, I do, I do want to say in closing, again, people need to choose the diet that feels best for them and meets their tastes and um, their, their um, fits into their way of eating. That's part of their culture and their, and any kind of dietary restrictions they have but does have, you know, you can go as, as whole food as possible and, you know, respect everybody else's choices too. You know, I mean, I think that's a big thing too. And think about your, the planet and being sustainable. And if you're trying to lose weight, you know, no matter what you read, <laughs> whatever the diet promises, I can tell you that it's reducing calories that ultimately causes the weight loss. I wish it was something else. And people will tell you it's something else, but there really isn't any good research to say beyond lowering your calories is gonna help you lose weight. And if you're gonna lower your calories, you need to really make some healthy choices about what you put in your mouth too. Right, I mean, that's the thing too, is anytime you take something out of your life, you need to replace it with something equal and healthy. Um, and that applies to diet, that applies to behavior change, whether you know, you're quitting, a, you know, a negative coping mechanism, you need to replace it with something healthy, right? And so 
um, yeah, that's, that's just, <laughs> it's true. yeah, it's one true. way to go about it. And, and again, remember to be kind to yourself and, you know, learn to have compassion for yourself too. These are really trying times. And even when we're not in COVID, we, you know, we, we need self-compassion. We are, we're going to be much more successful and, and also taking care of yourself. You will do better to take care of yourself so you can take care of other people too. So, and diet's part of that, obviously. Right. Like I said, you don't have to eat kale. <laughs> well, I think that's a good way to end. You don't have to eat kale from a nutritionist. <laughs> um, perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here, Belinda. You're so welcome. And it was great chatting with you. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the What's Up podcast. We'll catch up with you on our next episode, which will be posted every Friday this term. While PSU has gone remote for the time being, we wanted to let you know that Shaq is still here for you. We are fully committed to the physical and emotional health and wellness of PSU students. Please call ahead to use our health services for flu shots, free COVID testing, or general appointments at 503 503- 725-2800. Counseling services are still available via telehealth and you can schedule your appointments by calling that same number 503-725-2800. If you are looking for more health and wellness resources, you can check out our online health magazine that gets sent to your pdx.edu email every Wednesday or you can download the Campus Well app. You can also check out the virtual MindSpa experience to rest, relax, and rejuvenate wherever you have internet access. We will be including website links in the episode description. We also have a Google form that you can complete with any questions about health, shack, or anything we discuss in the podcast. You can find the link in the episode description. Thanks for listening, and take care. <laughs>